Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, we're discussing SST-186, the Brian Ritchie Nuclear War 12-inch. We haven't had Brian Ritchie on for a while. It was way back at episode 141, but looking forward to getting into a deep dive on this track. We've heard this track before, but this is we're going to go deep. And to help us go deep, Brent, we have a special guest. Yeah, we've got John Cruth on the show. Now, that is an interview, one for the ages. I would say that uh, people will really like to listen to that one. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, I can't wait to talk to you about it after it's over. <laughs> what an interesting guy. Oh, yeah, for yep. sure. Hey, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Well, Ryan, this week we decided to talk about Lotus Pool Records. Oh, yeah, that's right. So we've talked about them a few times on the show, uh, mostly because of the band Zoom. And Panel Donor. And Panel Donor. But we got a big package in the mail from Lotus yeah. Pool. Yeah, oh, yeah. Totally. A while ago. A big enough yeah. that it took a while to get to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it took our it took our Mojack vacation to get through it. Yeah, Lotus Pool is a, a cool label uh, formed in 92. This is that Lawrence, Kansas scene that we've talked about too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was started by... Chris Garibaldi and Matt Hyde, but eventually Chris took it over fully by himself. Great label, like you said. The bands Zoom and Panel Donor we've spoken about before. We've got this massive package, and we should go through some of these releases that Chris sent us because they're so cool. Um, Now, the first one that I listened to, I already have this. I already have the Poster Children Daisy Chain Reaction record. I'm a Poster Children completist. Yeah, I knew you would be. I knew you would have both of those. Yeah, this is a band from Champaign, Illinois. This is their 25th anniversary reissue of their 1991 classic Daisy Chain Reaction. This is produced by Steve Albini. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say produced by Steve Albini. Recorded by Steve Albini. And this album is actually mentioned in Andrew Earle's book, Gimme Indie Rock. Hmm. And so I wouldn't say it's a very well-known record. And Poster Children kind of, they dabbled in the in the major label world. Mm-hmm. But this is a Stone Cold Classic record for me of Indie Rock. Now, Chris also sent their uh, Grand Bargain CD from 2018. At the time, this was their first record in like 12 years. But... There's a ton of Poster Children records out there. These are two great ones, early Poster Children and late Poster Children that Chris sent us. And these are great. I already heard them, but I did not have the uh, Daisy Chain reaction on vinyl. So that is super cool to get that. Had you heard them before? Yeah, I think we've both spieled about them. Um, I have one of their records, Tool of the Man, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but that's it. I didn't have either of these pretty good you know just driving indie rock good songs good vocals reminds me maybe of like ted leo and the pharmacists a bit or something yeah i can hear some ted leo for sure i definitely got into them though because of the albini reference that was kind of my gateway to poster children and then i just ended up scooping up all their records Mm -hmm. and like i said you know daisy chain reaction probably their best known record i would say and certainly made its way into Andrew Earle's book. Do you know? Uh, do you know what I would call Andrew Earle's like his second book? 
Give me more. Do it. Give me more indie rock. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Thank, yeah. thank you, Brad. <laughs> uh, now, Chris sent some other stuff. He actually sent a disc by his band, the Sun Eaters, whom I've never heard before, and I was cool to check them out. He sent um, the record. It's their fourth album called Three Unfathomable Darkness, and it's cool. Uh, indie rock and roll. The uh, the song Come Alone is the standout for me on this track. Had no idea about this band. Definitely going to keep on digging into them a bit. The thing I read said, uh, this is I think I saw this on their website or their Bandcamp. I can't remember which. The primary they list their primary influences as SST Records, mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, Hanada Rash, which is a pretty funny reference. It that's Yamatakai of Borden's and Mitsuru Tabata of Zeni Giva, and that is just insane shit if you've never heard it. Yeah, I wouldn't say that Sun Eater no. sound like them at all, no. but anyways. Uh, Flipper, <laughs> In Excess, Cool Keith, and Graham Nash. Yeah. Uh, but some of their earlier stuff is way more avant-garde, so he also sent, I didn't send this to you, Ryan, because he only sent one, and I, you only do physical media anyways, but he sent a USB with a like I think all the other stuff on it that he didn't. Send oh no physic. way! Yeah. So it has all the Sun Eater stuff, and it's all up on Spotify too. By the way, if people want to yeah. check it out, I checked out a few tracks on Bandcamp though. Just yeah. kind of like, or well, not Bandcamp. I guess there's the Lotus Pool website. Maybe that's a Bandcamp. I yeah. can't remember. Yeah, there, some of the earlier stuff is certain, like certainly noisier and artier. Yeah, yeah I, I found that this record was, I guess probably the most straight ahead one that i had checked out but it's good mm-hmm. it's catchy indie rock some kind of rootsy stuff Mm-hmm. yeah and speaking of roots the uh the next three records that chris sent definitely have kind of a singer songwriter roots vibe to it i would say heidi lynn gluck he sent two of her records the only girl in the room well i guess it's a cd ep mm-hmm and the Pony Show LP, uh, singer-songwriter, great voice, great arrangements, great production, too. I, I really caught my attention at how good these two Heidi Lynn Gluck records sound. They sound mm-hmm. really good. She was in a band called Some Girls with Frida Smith and Juliana Hatfield. Mm-hmm. She's based out of Kansas, like many of these artists, uh, but she was born in Manitoba. No way. Yeah. I've been there once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you played at the Royal Albert Arms. That's right, I did too. I just saw I... some photos of Propagandi playing there. Yeah. Yep. The Eight Miles High single wasn't re- recorded there. The B-side was recorded right. there. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez, man, that's a long time since we did that episode. <laughs> Next, Chris Cardwell, Burning Heart 2018. This is kind of folk country roots. Mm-hmm. Not my cup of tea, but this is good. Yeah. It it actually caught my attention, and that's really unusual for this type of music. I, I actually would say, like, out of the two of us, you're probably more into this type of music than I am. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's good. You know, sparse instrumentation, pretty folky, good songwriting. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the other one in the singer-songwriter vein that Chris sent August Henry South Ramp an EP from 2020 uh, another guy from Kansas City a formerly keyboard player and vocalist in a band called LK Ultra 
that I didn't know anything about. I started checking out a couple of their tracks. Interesting stuff. Um, didn't catch my attention as much as Chris Cardwell, actually, but uh, definitely worth another listen. I kind of thought it sounded a little bit like uh, some lo-fi indie rock, like Sebado or something. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I, I would say, though, of the records that I had not heard before, my absolute favorite, hands down, was the Voice of Action record. Yeah, and my, this, this will come too, as no, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> this will come as no surprise to you. Like it was awesome. I loved it. Yeah. This is Mark Henning from the band Zoom, and uh, Allison Hacker from a Chicago band, The Office, and Jeff Panel, who's uh, on drums on this from a band called Descending Allegro. I don't know the band Office. I don't know the band Descending Allegro. i got to check them out. But this, by far, was uh, a record that I really, really enjoyed in the package. It's it's the one that's going to get multiple listens, for sure. Yeah, same for me. Good riffs. Loved the guitar tone on the album. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. got a total Chicago vibe to it, yeah. for sure. Hey, Ryan, real quick, before we get off of Lotus Pool, can I just dip into the comp zone real quick please do okay so there's a lotus pool comp called feast of the sybarites a collection yes. of lotus pudlians mm -hmm. have you seen this comp i'm pretty sure i have it is there's a track by dis on it i think yep. right i think that's yep. probably why i i probably when i was in my dis completist days i bought this comp october of 1993 so it's yep. it's uh, Lotus Pool seven zero zero four. So I think maybe this is their fourth release. Uh, the first track is Zoom and Brian Marshall. Now I don't know who Brian Marshall is, but this song's cool. Shopping Mall Massacre. Uh, like I kind of want to know who Brian Brian Marshall is. Maybe <laughs> like Chris will tell us, or maybe Jeremy Seidner, our our pal Jeremy will tell us. Yeah from panel donor uh maybe they'll clue us in if they hear this killer rock and track uh, brian the vocalist he kind of reminds me of art bergman there's some other cool stuff on here um kill creek yeah yeah they're cool they had some stuff on mammoth oh man yeah. i used to rock the kill creek uh records gosh what was the one saint valentine's day garage or something like that i gotta pull that out yep yeah great vocals from the singer scott bourne Mm-hmm. Gosh, what the heck was the name of that Kill Creek record I used to like? Trouble in Mind, kind of a garagey blues thing. This kind of cool home recorded thing by a guy Scott Harley. Uh, panel donors on here. Just killer bass playing. Killer tone on the bass. Ryan, have you heard bassist Charles Hines' other band Soft Gang? Mm-hmm. You yeah. betcha. That's really good. Yep. Yep. I was right. St. Valentine's Day Garage, Mammoth Records, 1994, Kill Creek. That's a good one. Got to pull that out. Uh, Hum is on here. I know we've yes. talked about them before. Oh, yeah. Love them. Very 90s indie rock sounding. Bully Pulpit, Ryan. They have a bunch of stuff on... Lotus on, Pool. On Lotus Pool. Have you heard them before? Yeah. I I've never really grabbed me, but I've checked them out, yeah. Yeah, this song's very arty and super interesting. It sounds like kind of two tracks mixed together that work really well, but I really don't understand how they would have created this track. It really works, though. I checked out some of their other stuff that's on this USB. Uh, after their debut in 94, the songs got more structured, but 
they're still super avant-garde and weird, like in the best way. I definitely will be diving deeper into Bully Pulpit. Oh, no way. Maybe cool. give him another another checkout, Ryan. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm pulling this comp out, and I'm going to give it a spin. I probably haven't listened to it for over 10 years. I'm surprised I could remember that diss is on there. Uh, Truck Stop Love is a band on here. Kind of country punk, but not like Nine Pound Hammer, like more straightforward. They're cool. They have as an anthology out called Can't Hear It, 91 to 94. A can- uh, Kansas band. Diss is on here, as you mentioned. Oh, yeah. Lots of these artists I couldn't find much on, ranging from like noisy touch-and-go type stuff to, you know, lots of 90s indie rock. Bands like Bonus Pale, Travis, Sufferbus, Draco Magnet, From, Rise, Dogtooth Violet, Transylvania 2000, Howard Iceberg and the Titanics, uh, Compound Red from Milwaukee. They have uh, a record on DeSoto. Mm-hmm. which I've seen before, but I've never heard. I bet you have it. Definitely would have fit in with, like, Discord bands of the early 90s. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, cool comp, man. Thanks, Chris, for sending us all that stuff. Yeah. Hit- I definitely have to give a few of them some more lessons for sure. But Voice of Action, the highlight, for sure. Yeah. Hey, speaking of, like, Chicago sound, you know what Rock Doc I finally got to watch? Uh, You weren't there? What, the Chicago Doc? Yeah. Oh no, I've seen I I I got that one, man. No, 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 no. Uh couldn't you wait? The Silkworm documentary. Mm, yep. Real, real good, man. Couldn't wait man. to see that, I bet, hey. <laughs> it's actually been like on my to-do list for a long time, but is kind of a sad story, but uh, a great band and just makes me want to re-listen to all their stuff and Bottomless Pit and Mint Mile and Made me realize that I've never taken a deep dive on Joel R.L. Phelps. I got to do that. Are you a fan of Joel R.L. Phelps? No. Is he from <laughs> Silkworm? Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he was in. He was on the first uh, few records, and then he hmm. uh, went off to do kind of more of a solo thing, I guess. Oh. But he, I mean, he has a band with him. Yeah, I got to do deep dive on him. He's on definitely some of my favorite Silkworm records. Hmm. Couldn't you wait? Great rock doc. Okay. Silkworm. Should we dive into some Brian Ritchie? I wouldn't want to start a nuclear war. History lesson, part one. All right, man. So, nuclear war, Brian Ritchie, 12-inch. We've had both of these songs before, but not quite like this. Yeah, these are all remixes, hey? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't say it on the packaging, though. Like, usually a 12-inch remix EP from the 80s would say dance remix or something yeah this this for me was like you know one of the ones where when i'm listening to it i'm going was it necessary for this to be made but at the same time you know in the 80s 12 inches they were just you know tons and tons of these being made and you never know which one will be like a dance floor hit or well, something I was right say, like these got played in clubs I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying these ones did but that would have been like the goal right like oh, that's for sure. that's why people made 12 inch single remixes for dance yeah. clubs and these exactly. are very very dancey songs these are totally like production wise production they're like dub hip hop funk yeah. 12 inch dance remixes i totally get why they are made um i was fine with the tracks from the record but it's cool to listen to them 
Yeah, like I wonder how many of these they actually sold and how many they promoted. Do you know what I mean? Ah, uh, yeah, I bet you a ton were promo. Mine's a cutout. Yeah. I don't think we really need to go through who plays on it. We kind of did that. It's the same lineup as the blend. It's from, mm-hmm. you know, from the same sessions. These are just remixes. You want to just throw it straight over to John Cruth and then we'll talk about the these two tracks? Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by John Cruth. John, thanks for being on the show. Sure. John, I'm wondering if you can take me back to growing up. Where are you from? Are you from New York? Uh, I grew up in Livingston, New Jersey, which is about 40 minutes directly west out of the Holland Tunnel. So, I mean, I was coming to New York since I was in my mom's womb. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, when did you first start playing an instrument? Well, probably at the age of eight, I started playing folk guitar uh, away at camp. You know, we uh, we uh, learned songs like We Shall Overcome, though I'm not quite sure what we were overcoming at <laughs> age eight at a sleepaway camp. And, you know, Michael Rowe, Your Boat Ashore and Kumbaya and all that kind of stuff. And then one of the counselors started to hip us to some Bob Dylan songs like Blowing in the Wind. When did you start expanding that into other instruments? Well, uh, my sister had a really cool boyfriend in high school who used to come over with a lot of Atlantic records, Atlantic jazz. And um, I heard Herbie Mann. And I I looked at Herbie Mann and I kind of thought, I might look like that guy one day and I really like the sound of his flute and everything like that. So uh, I asked my folks for a flute and my father being a a sergeant in World War II, you know, thought that was a a sure sign that I was gay. (laughs) And uh, so I got a flute on the condition that... uh, that I would take some classical lessons. So they set up some lessons with this guy, uh, uh, Mr. Quinlan, who played in the Philharmonic, in the New York Philharmonic. And and uh, I went over there and uh, took a couple of lessons. And maybe by the second or third lesson, I brought over a Charles Lloyd record of Charles Lloyd playing um, Autumn Leaves. And it, which is so beautiful. Uh, Keith Jarrett's on piano. And, and I put the record on and I said, I want to sound just like this. And he said, no, you don't. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that was kind of uh, the end of my flute lessons. Okay. So after that, uh, probably by the age of 14 or 15, I had heard uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. You know, I didn't hear Bill Monroe at first. I heard Sweetheart at the Rodeo. And then I heard the band, Levon Helm was playing the mandolin. And uh, the Incredible String Band might have happened before or around then, too. And, of course, I was a huge fan of Brian Jones. I mean, I bought Rolling Stones records to hear what Brian Jones was doing as much as 
the songs or the band what they were playing mm -hmm. but they all had mandolins and odd strings and you know flutes and recorders and all of that kind of stuff and somewhere along the line i got the idea that mm, playing these instruments was kind of like a, a palette like an artist's palette and that you could use sound as color so you could uh you know, you could mix colors and uh, sounds like color and all these instruments provided different colors and everybody was just playing the guitar. I mean, it was like, you know, it was a very um, conformist kind of thing. I mean, maybe somebody played an organ, uh, but, you know, it was all guitar and bass and drums. And I thought, well, I can play guitar, but I can play this other stuff too, you know? And also uh, the harmonica, of course, was really big. I, I, uh, I, I love Bob Dylan. And then I started hearing real blues harmonica, you know, and that, wow, that just sent me. And you could take it anywhere. You could put it in your pocket. And right. what really saved me from what we used to call greasers the greasers used to push me around and beat me up because I had long hair and, you know, and I played these odd instruments and everything like that. And, and uh, the ninth grade talent show saved my life, really, when I got up and played <laughs> Born in Chicago by uh, uh, Paul Butterfield. Yeah. Uh, in ninth grade and of course the lyric goes you know i was born in chicago in 1941 my mama told me son you better get a gun so it must have been hysterical <laughs> okay so fast forwarding into new york a little bit are you playing around kind of that downtown scene so what happened was I went to school in Minneapolis uh, because I was number 50, 51, something like that in the draft. And I wanted to go to uh, the coolest school I could find near the Canadian border was um, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. And I went to school there and I, I was playing guitar and mandolin and um really was into Leo Kaki and Ry Cooter and John Fahey and really, you know, learning how to play and really getting into it and playing some coffee houses in Minneapolis, actually. And then punk broke. Right. And it was like suddenly uh, you were kind of really old hat if you were playing you know, that kind of stuff, this kind of stuff that we had been into. And so I started this band called the Whirl and Dervishes, and we were playing like two minute versions of Hellhound on My Trail by Robert Johnson. I, I was working with a great slide guitar player. Mm. And uh, so we were kind of like a punk blues band, if that makes any sense. Kind of like, uh, like the gun and, club or something, maybe. Yeah, it was it was raw, man. It was fun and it was raw. And basically the shows ended by the time whenever I screamed, you know, my voice out. And, you know, it, it still allowed us to use the blues chops that we had, but we just were really ripping through this stuff. And one by one, all the guys in the band were moving back, we were moving to New York. And this was like 1978. And uh, 
they were all moving to New York and I was from here and I had already spent time here and I wasn't so sure I really wanted to come back, but eventually I came back and we, and we played at Max's and we played at CBGB's and the name of the band changed a number of times. And, and uh, I, I started to realize I was writing songs. I was writing lyrics. I, was, I started writing poetry and uh, by the time I was 15 and was published in New York times and Rolling Stone by the time I was 19 wow. and, and um I realized nobody can understand the words. They can't hear what I'm saying. So I started going over to Folk City. And my first real show at Folk City was in 1979 when I opened for Odetta and David Amram. And uh, that was a pretty amazing thing. But, you know, the folk scene to me was also very limited. You know, it was guys with guitars playing three, four chord songs, didn't really understand, have a broader musical understanding. And that's why when I met Brian Ritchie from Violent Femmes, um, playing at Folk City, that's where I first saw them as part of the Music for Dozens uh, series that Pat Denizio, I believe, of the Smithereens had started. And... Um, when I met Brian and I saw Violent Fans uh, at Folk City in the early 80s, um, it made perfect sense to me. Those were the first guys that I saw that were combining elements of, you know, free jazz, Sun Ra, uh, all the stuff that I had been listening to and loved at, with acoustic and punk. And it was all right there. And I went up to Brian right after the first set or right after the show. And I said, what are you listening to? And he said, uh, uh, Sun Ra, uh, Nick Drake. I was playing the folk scene back then and nobody, nobody, nobody knew who Nick Drake was. The only reason I knew who Nick Drake was, was that he was produced by Joe Boyd. Okay. And I was an incredible string band fanatic and a Fairport convention fanatic. And uh, anything that Joe Boyd produced, I bought. So uh, he was listening to Nick Drake. He was the first guy that I met that was listening to Sun Ra, Nick Drake, you know, Don Cherry, all this, all this different stuff. And uh, I told him I was a multi-instrumentalist and he said, well, we're playing at Columbia University tomorrow night if you want to come sit in with us. So that was the beginning of my relationship with Violent Femmes and, um, and with Brian. And uh, I had already, you know, uh, I was working on my first album at that point. And uh uh, soon after, Brian just said, well, why don't you come out to Milwaukee, man? I mean, the studios are a lot cheaper and we'll back you up. Yeah. <laughs> so they uh, all three of them played on my first album. I went out to check out Milwaukee. I'd already lived in Minneapolis. Um, people could put down the Midwest as much as they want. I mean, it's kind of weird these days, certainly after the era of Trump and, and Wisconsin getting as screwed up as it has but uh back in the 80s the uh in the 70s and 80s there was a lot of great music coming out of the midwest and a lot of cool artists and 
all of that. So um, I went out to check out Milwaukee and uh, soon after decided to move out there for a while because it seemed to me that the scene in New York was already, had already crested, it had already happened by 86, by 87. Um, it, CBGBs had become, it was just a real conformist trip. If you weren't wearing, you know, certain clothes and combing your hair a certain way and wearing Doc Martens and playing your guitar in a certain way, you weren't working. And the folk clubs like um, Folk City, that they soon closed around then. And there was a place called the Speakeasy where I used to play, where Suzanne Vega was part of that scene. And and uh, so, you know, it just seemed like the whole thing was kind of had already peaked. And, and I was very curious about Milwaukee. The rents were cheap enough. Uh, I, I, you could go out and play two three sets a night instead of playing you know one 40 minute set like you, you got in new york if you were lucky so it was an interesting change of pace and uh it actually worked out really well uh tell me about that the scene that you were coming into like what kind of bands would you have been playing with well it it's funny well you got to remember um you know i mean uh I wasn't just a side musician. I, I had my own thing. And I had a number of my, I mean, I've had 11 albums out over the years. And so it, I was doing my own thing when I got to Milwaukee. I had an album called Midnight Snack that uh, all three of the Femmes and Sigmund Snowpack and a number of the really good musicians that were in Milwaukee played on. And I also, um, I had started the album in New York. So the album was like half New York and half Milwaukee guys. And um, there were some really great guys from New York that played on it as well. And so when I got out there, uh, I started up a, a band. I had a guy named uh, Mike Cashew play bass with me. Mike had been in Swamp Thing from Madison and I really liked Swamp Thing a lot. Uh, and uh, Swamp Thing, a lot of people looked at them as like a budget violent femmes, if that makes any sense. And uh, uh, and they were a really cool band. And, and so Mike started playing bass with me and uh, Mike wound up uh, playing with, um, with in Brian's band as well. And Mike also wound up in garbage, playing in garbage. Um, one of the coolest things that happened when I was in Milwaukee, uh, besides playing with the guys from the Femmes and, and, and playing um, on Brian's projects, was I also worked with DeKreutzen. Now, it's a funny thing because people will always try to put you in a box uh, as a uh, multi-instrumentalist. They'll always say, well, you're really a guitarist or you're really a mandolinist who dabbles with these other instruments. Or they'll say, well, you're folk, you're not really rock or you're this or you're that. Well, the guys from DeKreutzen used to come down and see my band play. And it was really interesting because, I mean... Uh, John Zorn uh, considered Eric Tunison of DeKreutzen to be the greatest hardcore drummer there was. He also played in Killdozer. Right. So, I mean, I had no fear or borderlines in my head about 
music. Um, I, I liked all kinds of music as long as it was, as it was good. And De Kreutzen were amazing. Uh, and De Kreutzen uh, soon had me playing with them. I played flute and tw some 12 string guitar and mandolin and mandocello and recorded with them with Butch Vig. So uh, I guess, you know, I don't, I don't feel constrained by these different styles of music or anything like that. Yeah. And uh, so it was interesting that they were coming down to see my band, which was, you know, pretty acoustic. I was either playing a, a Gibson mandolin with a pickup on it or a mandocello. And for a while, I just I, I, I put the guitar away because I, everyone was playing guitar and I wanted to be able to prove that you could play rockabilly and punk and all kinds of stuff on, on mandolin, you know? So, uh, uh, so I, ha I had an album called Banshee Mandolin. And Brian played, Brian probably played on about four or five five of my albums over the years. So uh, it was always coming and going. The thing with the Femmes was always coming and going. I would play with them a little bit here. I would play on with Brian on a project there, or if Gordon was around, uh, I, I played a number of solo gigs with Gordon. And I also played, uh, sat in with his, uh, you know, his Christian uh, uh, gospel band, uh, the, the Mercy Seat. So, you know, it was just, it was about music, you know, it was about like, and I always dug hanging out with Brian in that he, you know, he was a multi-instrumentalist and he had access to a lot of different uh a lot of different instruments. So he was always picking up this or that or focusing on, you know, he could focus on keyboards for a while and start playing some really good keyboards or his guitar playing. Most people don't realize what a great guitar player Brian is. Mm -hmm. And uh, we opened for Donovan one night as a, du as a duo. That was a blast. That was a lot of fun, you know? And the thing was, I mean, you know, we could play a lot of instruments between us. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, so that was a very it, that that was a very interesting kind of thing. Um, I, when I got out there, he had just finished the blend, his first album for SST, and uh, then he, I think there was a uh, like a EP or something of Atomic, Atomic, uh, Atomic War or something like that, Nuclear War mm -hmm. by uh, by Sunra. And uh, I wasn't on those because he had already recorded those. And, uh, and you know, he was talking about getting a band together and he was playing songs that I was playing too. I was, I always played uh, Sunhouse songs, uh, Don't You Mind People Grinning in Your Face. And he had a similar version of um, uh, John the Revelator that I was playing. And so, it, it, you know, we were just hanging out and, and, and playing music together. And uh, he had a girlfriend at that point who was a really good bass player, uh, Cindy. Uh, she was from um, Tete Noir. She was from Minneapolis. Yep. But, you know, being in a mom and pop band is a weird thing because, like, you know, 
<laughs> it's just a strange dynamic. Yeah, sure. And that was kind of uncomfortable for me. I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really into it as much playing when Cindy, Cindy was playing bass, just like Brian, Brian either taught her how to play bass, just like him. So he could play guitar or she was just really good at picking up his style. Mm -hmm. um, she played the electric bass. She didn't play his his acoustic bass. And she was definitely a good bass player. And there was a good drummer in the band. And we went out as a four piece with that band. I'm trying to remember if, uh, if Peter was in that version. I don't know if Peter was in that version of the band at first. I think we played a, a number of shows as a four piece. And then Peter Balistrari, who had been playing with uh, Violent Femmes, is a, you know, was in the ghostly trio that Victor Di Lorenzo produced their Christmas album. And if you haven't heard the, the uh, if you haven't heard the ghostly trio's Christmas album, you don't know what Christmas is. And, and, uh, so uh, Cindy went back to Minneapolis, that kind of ended, and uh, he, got, um, he got Mike Cashew to play bass, and Mike is a tremendous, wonderful bass player and a really easy cat to get along with. And, um, and, and then Peter was in the, in the band, and we went out as a five-piece. And, uh, you know, it wasn't always easy. I think that, um, I think that Brian kind of just expected that half or three quarters of the uh, crowd that went out to see Violent Femmes would show up to see us, but that wasn't the case. And it, it's never the case. So when, when, you know, Tom Verlaine left television or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's just never the case yeah, where the, ori <laughs> the original band, the name that people recognize and feel connected to, if one of the guys goes out, it's just, it, you're not usually going to get that kind of draw. And so suddenly, you know, we made a Sonic Temple and Court of Babylon for uh, SST. And, you know, I, I had mixed feelings about the record. There was a lot of things that we, that I got to do on the record and contributed to the record that I really enjoyed and really liked. Uh, Brian's musical aesthetic was one that I, certainly connected to and i mean whether it was mixing country or arabic music and and free jazz i mean we both had learned how to play off a uh, a none such record the music of afghanistan song of the cricket separately i mean we both had that record separately and learned that's the same song so later on, we both recorded Song of the Cricket in, uh, at different times. You know, that was on his third album, I See a Noise. So there was a lot of similarities. And I mean, you know, he was definitely a harder rocker than I was, when, especially when he played guitar. It got a little loud and a little bludgeoning, I think, at times. But, you know, we had some really good times. We toured with the Meat Puppets, and that was a blast. And uh, I used to sit in with the Meat Puppets on some of those shows and, uh, you know, play mandolin or banjo or harmonica and flute with the Meat Puppets. And I love those guys. And they were great fun, you know. And uh, we definitely had some some good times touring mostly around the Midwest, uh, East Coast. We, we did one tour with Perubu, but that uh, we, we, we kind of got kicked off the tour because David is a uh, 
<clears throat> you know, Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and most of Brian's songs, I'm sure you know, are either about uh, sex, drugs, uh, politics, and, and slamming Christianity a bit. This touring band, were you being billed as Elephant Lip? I read that. that uh, that's what Well, it started was. out as Elephant Lip. Uh, and then uh, SST really wanted it to be br- the Brian Ritchie group or whatever, the Brian Ritchie band or Brian Ritchie, because that's what the name that was on the record. Hmm. Re- records were Brian Ritchie records, even though, now you got to understand, um, Brian wrote a lot of those songs with uh, Peter Balistrieri. Peter wrote a lot of the lyrics and Peter was a really great singer. It's kind of unfortunate that the band wasn't more of a band uh, because Peter was a great front man and a great singer and uh, wrote a lot of the lyrics. And uh, Brian probably would tell you that he's not the greatest front man or the greatest singer on the planet. I mean, Brian could play his ass off on any given instrument. In fact, you know, most of Brian's later records are not vocal records or not don't have a lot of lyrics or don't have a lot of songs on them. He got into the shakuhachi, which was a really cool and beautiful thing to do. And uh, I and I, I played in on one of the shakuhachi albums with Billy Ficka of television and Tony Trishka. And he had a tuba player instead of a bass player on that record. So, you know, I think that Brian found certain limitations as a solo artist going out and fronting a band. Um, I kind of like the way he sang. It was very Mick Jagger, you know, it was very, uh, had a certain kind of hard bluesy kind of thing going on. But Peter was really a a really good front man. And I think that, I think that, both Peter and I felt frustrated in the situation. At one point, we both quit. And uh, that came after an article in Option Magazine where uh, either the editor or Brian failed to talk about how much uh, we had been contributing to those songs and to that music because there was very little mention of Peter or myself uh, after... uh, after Sonic Temple and Court of Babylon. I mean, you can listen to that record. And and as I said, Peter wrote a lot of the uh, lyrics, some of the best songs he wrote uh, the lyrics to. I love the version of Sun, the song Sun Ra on there. And uh, there's a number of really great tunes on that on that record. I, uh, I really love that record. And we also did a great version of um, Phil Oakes's uh, parade. And, uh, you know, that was another thing. Uh, Brian dug Phil Oakes, and of course, so did I. So we, there was a lot of meeting there. And, but it seemed the longer I was in the band, the less I was contributing uh, after a while. And I, I left uh, after the beginning of, um, uh i see a noise i'm on like one or two tracks on that record and 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 i left uh i had my own records to make and uh 
we kind of did our thing for a while and and we didn't hang out too much for a while and then of course we started playing again over the years you mentioned sun Ra and the the song nuclear war which i'm assuming was in your set did you either with brian or you know with the femmes or in any of your solo bands did you ever get to play with sun Ra? I've never played with Sun Ra. I met Sun Ra and interviewed him for my book on Ra Sun Roland Kirk. And uh, I saw Sun Ra play many times. I mean, maybe, you know, 15 or 20. I don't know how many times I saw Sun Ra. And, um, and used to go down to see him play over at Sweet Basil when he had the Monday night gig and would just go over there and and I mean, the guys in the band got to know me. I, I particularly got to know John Gilmore and um, they would invite me backstage so that when they cleared the house after the first set, I didn't have to I didn't get kicked out and I didn't have to pay the second time. And I went downstairs and one time I was sitting there with with Sun Ra and Andrew Young. And that was really uh, something I was just sitting there quietly listening to their conversation as they were discussing Duke Ellington. And that was, uh, that was really quite an experience. Um, I, I, maybe I should mention that uh, after I moved back to New York in 1996, I became friends with Ornette Coleman mm -hmm. and, uh, and interviewed Ornette maybe over eight or 10 times. And, uh, played with Ornette over at his house um, at his uh, at his loft uh, I don't know how many times uh, played with him played with the master musicians of Jezuka and and Ornette and uh, and I brought Brian over there and uh, and we played I played alto flute and there's some photographs and uh, and some recordings, but I, I, I can't let those out. <laughs> and, uh, and, but there's some photographs and, and, and I brought, I brought Brian over and he played Shakahachi and Ornette played uh, mostly alto that day. And uh, I played alto, I played alto flute. Um, one of the things that I had going with Ornette that was so much fun was he, he liked to play violin with me when I played mandolin and we played this very kind of Appalachian bluegrassy outer space music together. That was very, uh, very cool. And, and um, when he would pull you into his orbit, into his wake, you would play things that you had no idea you knew how to play. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool. And I know that Brian really dug <laughs> coming over there. I bet. <laughs> Tell me about your memories of the group Le Noisemakers from Hell. <laughs> Le Noisemakers from Hell. One of the reasons why I moved to Milwaukee was probably because of Le Noisemakers from Hell. Um, as I said, in New York, I was really feeling less and less inspired by what was happening around me. I, I just saw CBGB's as a, CBGB's as a conformity trip. The 
the the the punk thing had already as played itself out pretty much by the mid eighties. Um, there was the folk scene to me was very the singer songwriter thing to me was very limited and getting stale. And you know the femmes I thought really brought a charge. And when I went to Milwaukee to hang out with those guys, um, Sigmund Snowpack, the keyboard player, played on a, quite a number of albums of uh, and, and tours with Violent Femmes. And Sigmund was the one that turned me on to them, called me from Milwaukee and said, there are these guys playing over at Folk City, man, from, you, you know, from Milwaukee. You got to go see them. And I was like, yeah, 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 right. And uh, so, you know, I just kind of at the last minute went, okay, I guess I'll go see what they're like. And, you know, and it, it was galvanizing. And so Sigmund and Peter really were the lay noise makers from hell. Um, and it, Victor DiLorenzo on drums and, and Brian on bass. And that was the core of the band. And they would have various guitar players from, uh, around town, mostly John Seeger from uh, Semi-Twang or Mike Hoffman from Semi-Twang, which was another Milwaukee band. There were a couple of different uh, bars around town where they where they played. And um, I was a big fan of the Mothers of Invention. I never saw the original band because I was too young, but I did see uh, the band with the with uh, Flo and Eddie. I saw that band a few times over at the Fillmore by the time 1970, 71, I saw started seeing Zappa and and um, nobody that I had seen had the energy and the spontaneity and the creativity and the perversity of uh, Zappa and the mother, that Mothers of Invention band until I saw the noise, lay noisemakers from hell. Wow. Because they were, it was like, that was one of the, probably that might've been the convincing thing that made me move to Milwaukee. It was nice to hang out with the fans and record with those guys. And there were some interesting bands around town. And I have to say being a big fish in a little pond really was charming for a while because all of a sudden I'm in all the papers and getting gigs and all that New Yorker. What is a New York? guy live from Greenwich Village. What is this guy doing here? You know, people thought I was nuts because they all wanted to be in New York. And I had, you know, been in New York for a good part of my life and saw that, you know, I mean, look, I wish that I wish that New York was like it was in the mid 80s when I decided it wasn't happening. I wish it was like that now because it's you know, it's in in the wake of COVID, things are really, really uh, kind of dead. Um, but uh, so, you know, you would go down and see the noisemakers from hell and they would be singing uh, sucking on the cock of the gay to sitting on the dock of the bay. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like, what is going on here? 
You know, they were they were uh, they were wild. They were pretty fucking out of hand. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I would sit in with them from time to time. And uh, I was also writing poetry, doing spoken word stuff. And I would sit in with that and uh, do a couple of poems here and there. Or maybe I would bring some weird instrument down and and sit in with them. And 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 it was a blast. There was something happening <laughs> and it had true. It had a real energy, you know, it had. Uh, I mean, they could be playing Kurt Vile. They were playing Kurt Vile. They were playing all kinds of stuff. So it, it was it was exciting. Uh, Milwaukee was definitely, you know, you people would always cock their head or squint and go Milwaukee, and I would take that as a really good sign because it was like good if they thought it was square or you know, not happening or whatever. Great. Because I had lived in New York long enough to know that you need a place. I remember, I remember uh, hearing Patty Smith, somebody asking Patty, you know, well, what's, what are younger kids supposed to do today? You had CBGBs and the whole downtown scene in New York. You had that, you know, what are we supposed to do? And she said, move to Detroit. The rents are cheaper, you know, to find a burnt out place and fix it up and make your own scene and make it happen. And she was totally right about that, because when I moved to Milwaukee, we had a two bedroom apartment that you could see the lake, Lake Michigan from the streets were clean and the apartment cost 400 bucks a month, which was expensive for Milwaukee. And you could you could get a rehearsal space. You had enough time to work, write songs and, and rehearse your band. Where in New York, it was always a challenge. Where were you going to rehearse? You had to pay for rehearsal time. You only had a 40 minute set at any given club. You couldn't go work stuff out. When I got to Milwaukee, I started writing more music than I ever had written before. And, and you know, I had time to rehearse with different musicians. And I also found that the musicians were, for the most part, a lot of them, I won't say better, but they were, they put themselves into it, gave it more time because they had more time. It was possible to put together a good band there where in New York, you know, everybody was always looking at their watch and wondering when they were getting paid. Right. Could you see that painting behind me? There's like an orange and blue painting. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. That painting was made in 1955, the year I was born by Eric von Schmidt. Oh, and Eric von Schmidt, if you don't know, uh, wrote or is credited for writing Baby Let Me Follow You Down that Bob Dylan recorded on his first album and then recorded with the band later on. And um, he wrote a, he wrote songs that James Taylor and Johnny Cash uh, uh, recorded and performed. And wow. he was like my adopted father. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Check out Eric's music. Eric was great. I mean, on the cover of Bringing It All Back Home, Bob Dylan's sitting there holding his record. Oh, okay. Uh, The folk blues of Eric von Schmidt. So he's another guy that I was lucky enough to play with. I've been 
I've had an interesting career that way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, when was the last time you got on stage with the Femmes? Oh, wasn't really that long ago. It was, I think, a couple, a, a year or two before COVID, hmm. you know. Um, I, I was just, I, I, I was, sometimes the Femmes gave me some room to play. Like, I'll never forget playing with them at the, uh, at Irving Plaza. Uh, we started the song off with, uh, we started the set off with, um, uh, country death song and uh, I played electric mandolin on it and uh, you know they never it, it's funny you know because I think that I think that what happened with violent fans is that they were very open uh, in that they brought all kinds of people up on stage with them to be a part of the horns of dilemma mm-hmm. and uh, I, and I really believe that one of the reasons why they called that album three, their fourth album, they called three was because there were only three violent femmes, uh, you know, Brian, Victor and Gordon. Right. And and uh, but so many other people were referred to as being members of the band when we were all just members of the Horns of Dilemma. I mean, I, you know, that's the thing and i mean people referred to me as a member of the violent Femmes. i was never never a member of the violent Femmes. i was lucky to be invited to play with them and i'm glad that they felt a friendship and a kinship with me and in my music and recorded with me uh victor and and brian are on a number of my recordings and and uh and uh and gordon was on two of my albums and and uh so that was very cool but you know uh, i mean i remember that one show where i played electric mandolin on that on that song on a country death song and I'm standing at the front of the stage with Gordon and I realized, you know, maybe, uh, maybe people think I'm in this band or something, you know, I don't know. It was just, they were unlike other people, other bands that would just invite you up on stage and give you the space to do what it was that you that you were about they did that with tony trishka and with a number of people and uh you know looking back at it there was a a real generosity there and and uh but i also think that it kind of uh you know i don't know if it backfired on them but it, it became kind of an issue and and um and so, you know, they would always invite a crew of friends and noise, various noisemakers up on stage to play on Black Girls or, you know, whatever. I'm trying to remember the other tune that we used to play with them. And I've, I've played a number of different instruments with violent films. I played saxophone, screeching horn with them, or I've played penny whistle or I played, you know, whatever it was. And, and uh, it was always fun. And after a while, you know, I did it a, what, how many times? I don't know. And after a while, it was like, I didn't necessarily feel like I had to do it or if they wanted, you know, they wanted that noise. They wanted that wall of exploding sound. On, uh, I, was that song called Confessions or something mm-hmm. like that? Yep. Uh, off the, off of, 
so yeah, that was kind of like what it was about. And uh, uh, I remember one time playing at Summerfest with them and uh, and walking up to Gordon in the middle of the of a song while we were f- playing all this wild noise stuff and just saying in his ear, going, "Wow, we're, are we still dreaming this?" And he said, "Yeah, and it's a good thing too." <laughs> So, you know, I mean, Myland um, uh, Femmes, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of tension there, a lot of uh, between the members and the band. And of course, it exploded a bit. Uh, it was unfortunate that that was there, but that was part of the dynamic of who they were. I don't think that they ever expected the band to last as long as it did or to go as far as it went. And uh, all of a sudden you find yourself in a marriage with some people that you might not have otherwise spent more than a, you know, an evening with. And, and I think that's what happened with that, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, there was uh, on that very first tour I went on with them. uh, I remember playing up in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And man, I mean, that first tour that I went out with them on, uh, I had to go home after a little while there, man. It was pretty wild. It was pretty, you know, I I hadn't seen anything like that myself firsthand before. <laughs> there a lot of girls lined up to meet them and all kinds of <clears throat> people showing up with various you know, gifts of substances on the flow that, you know, it was like, I was, look, uh, Victor and I are the same age. I was older than Brian and and certainly older than Gordon. And uh, so this was almost like a second wave for me. Right, you know, right, this right. was like almost a second wave. I had already thought I had been through that rock and roll thing. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm out with those guys. And it was like, whoa, I'm a married man. And, you know, uh, I can't do this every night. I, I, I got to go home. <laughs> <laughs> right on. What a crazy story. So cool to hear from John about like everything, man, yeah. every, everything. Well, I should let people know. So, if if you haven't seen this in your feed yet, we're gonna do episode one eighty seven is also in your feed, which is another Brian Ritchie twelve inch EP, and it has part two of the interview, which is you know also really good. But yeah, totally crazy story. You know, love hearing about him moving to Milwaukee. Like, it's not a scene that really gets a lot of attention looking backwards you know you always hear about these scenes like uh athens georgia even or something but milwaukee had a super fertile scene cheap rent like he says super big haven for artists um kind of reminded me of alternatives a little bit from last week you know like lots of jamming and collaborating and and just super artistic community yeah there's uh a book about the the Milwaukee scene that I have never picked up, but I've always wanted to brick through the window mm-hmm. an oral history of punk rock, new wave and noise in Milwaukee, 1964 to 1984. Oh, that wow. sounds, that sounds like a cool book. I've never picked it up. Now 
there is a Milwaukee book that I do have, which is not, it's okay, not the greatest. The Cease is Increase, an oral history of the Milwaukee punk and alternative music scene. This is the only one that I've picked up. It's okay. The other one, though, Brick Through the Window, that one I'm interested in reading. it. When I read about it, it sounds like a better read. I've just never been able to pick it up. Hey, you know how John was talking about Zappa with Flo and Eddie? Yep. Do you know that I saw Flo and Eddie play once? Did you? At a casino. <laughs> okay, so here, here's the thing. There was a music festival in town, mm-hmm. and I saw on the same day, I saw Jonathan Richmond, Wire, and then I drove to the casino, like in the southern part of my city, and I saw Flo and Eddie, because I'm such a huge Zappa fan, and Flo and Eddie were a amazing it was an amazing show and and they had greg hawks from the cars on keyboards with them it was an amazing show man i'm just picturing like i've seen a few shows at casinos like i'm not a gambler at all i specifically went to a casino oh you know you you know when to hold them right specifically went to see the band and like no hardly anybody else was there to see the band they all got comped yes oh yeah yeah I know. I, like I'm picturing a bunch of comped, drunk gamblers out of Flo and Eddie. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and we're all sitting on like <laughs> banquet chairs, and, and and they're having a freak out on stage. But it's great because I I mean I I've read Howard Kalin's book too. Have you read that? Howard no, Kalin's I've looked. That's one I've looked at before actually, and thought to myself, I I'm not the a oh, total. It's, it's, it's I'm a not a total read. nut like you are, but I bet it's hilarious oh it's good i've got it you can borrow it anytime it's good but yeah that's a great read it talks about like of course zappa but everything that they did afterwards just as flo and eddie they wrote like all the music for the care bears uh (laughs) animated series in like the 80s it's a wild ride man howard kaylin flo and eddie yeah i've read enough reviews about the book that it's definitely you know it's on my list yeah but i mean john has got quite a story too man wait till you hear the second part of the interview uh just when you thought you'd heard about all the people and places and stuff that john had done man no there's more to come hey um he mentions peter belstrieri who plays on this record and his his group the ghostly trio and their christmas album right haven't had a Christmas unless you've listened to that or something. It's true, man. It's on YouTube. It's worth checking out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty out there. Should we go through these tracks, Ryan? Sure, man. History Lesson, Part 2. So, like we said, Ryan, this was released as a 12-inch EP and also as a mini CD. One of those stupid mini CDs that that they a three, did. three-incher. Yeah. Uh, so, the A-side is Nuclear War, a Sun Ra song mm-hmm. uh, here's what I f- found by Al Campbell this is all music one of the rarest discs in Sun Ra's enormous catalog recorded in 1982 Nuclear War disappeared until 2001 he's talking about the album Nuclear War uh, when the Chicago based atavistic label made it part of their exceptional unheard music series which is a very cool series by the way uh, oh, I've never checked that out. Yeah, it's all just really wild avant-garde stuff. Hmm. Do you have some of it? Yeah, some of it. Oh, cool. Yep. Uh, originally 
Ra was so sure the funky dance track was a hit, he immediately took it to Columbia Records, where they immediately rejected it. Why he thought a song with the repeating chant, it's a motherfucker, don't you know? If they push that button, your ass gotta go. And what you gonna do without your ass would be a hit is another puzzle in the Sun Ra myth. Mm-hmm. Even, even with the danceability factor, without... Without heavy censoring, the song would never be played on the radio. Severely depressed by the rejection, but still determined, Ra licensed the track to Y Records, a post-punk label out of Britain. Released as a 12-inch EP, and then later as an album, but only in Italy. Uh, so th- there are a number of, of versions of this song. Like, Sun Ra's catalog is... Oh, it's like, insane. It is just ridiculous. Uh... Some are streaming, though. There's a, a version recorded live in Paris in 1983, which is very sparse on instrumentation, but really high on percussion. That's super cool. People should check that out. Uh, but yeah, like his catalog is just so vast. And there's so many reissues and mm-hmm. 12-inch EPs and comps. It's kind of really tough to figure out even like the trajectory of this song. It pops up a lot in his catalog. This version by Brian Ritchie is almost seven minutes long. The album version is four minutes, 14 seconds. Yeah. Like it has the, like on the blend. almost, th- almost three minutes extra for sure. Yeah. It starts off kind of less funky. I would say no yeah. slapping, but then it finally gets there. Yeah. The horns are like really dubby. Uh, there are some sections from the German vocal version. Yep. The you Deutsch can... section. Yeah, you can hear Victor De Lorenzo with the kalimba quite a bit. I mean, I say that, did you really need this release to get Brian Ritchie played on the dance floor? Maybe you did. But the one thing I picked up this time listening to it that didn't come across to me on the blend was uh, the bass playing during the solo. Uh, It's actually pretty damn good. And I didn't realize that when I listened to it in the context of the LP, I only picked it up listening to it on the 12-inch here this week. Cynthia Bartel, man. Yeah, exactly. Now, Ryan, but like you're, you would probably know more about this than I would. Maybe I'm really not an audiophile, but like, isn't the, the 12-inch EP kind of, isn't the idea behind it, like the big fat grooves for like a really loud dance floor? Of course. Like, yeah. You know, same kind of idea as like, uh, you know, a 12 inch EP on a sound system back in Jamaica in the seventies. That and the fact that it's spinning at 45 RPM too. Right. We'll, we'll give you a, a bit of a more dancier fidelity, I guess you could say. Uh, there's probably a technical explanation, but you're damn right. Okay. Flip it over, Ryan. And we've got Alphabet. Again, the LP version is 5 minutes 37 seconds. This one's 7 minutes 30 seconds. Credited here to Richie, but it's actually a co-write with Peter Belstrieri. So, important to note that. This was also released as the promo single. Yep. The A-side. And the flip side of that was Feast of Fools, which was our ballot result pick for the blend. Yep. One of those PSST promo singles. Yeah. This one is the one for me that sound, it has a real dub, like a, the most dub type of vibe to it. The treatment of Alphabet on the flip here for me. 
Yeah. I like the kind of extended psychedelic guitar outro with all the feedback. Mm. Yeah. I'd be really curious to know if, you know, these got played in a, in any of dance clubs. I think that there's a chance that, you know, a DJ would put it on if they got it as a promo and see if it stuck and if people got up and danced. Um, and if they didn't, this ended up, you know, at the used record store next weekend. I am a big Dead Milkman fan, hey? So I have, like, everything. I'm, you're a you're a poster children completist. I'm a Dead Milkman completist. Yeah. And one time in the 90s, a friend of mine was going to a rave when those were a thing. And he asked if he could borrow my Dead Milkman 12-inch for their song, You'll Dance to Anything. <laughs> to play at the rave. <laughs> Do you know that song? I do, I do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. I mean, I know the more, I probably know the more pop, well, I don't want to say popular, famous, maybe not even famous, but you know, the hits, I guess, yeah. the Dead well, Milkman stuff. I have a remix EP of that song, Ryan. You'll Dance to Anything. Wow. Ultimate I, Club Hit, I think it's called. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have, I think, what records are, sorry, what labels were they on? Enigma? Yeah. Mostly. Mostly. Bucky, Bucky Fellini. Yep. Is that one? Mm -hmm. uh, Metaphysical Graffiti. Awesome. Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure I have the first four or five. Beals of Baba. That's awesome. Why, yeah, yeah. Classic. Smoking Banana Peels, Bitch and Camaro. I have that EP, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Eat Your Paisley is a great yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. Love the Dead Milkman, man. I've got a DVD of theirs, too. Boy, mm. I haven't watched that in a while. Did you ever listen to, like, they reformed in the last five years and put out a whole new record. Yep. Did you check that out? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah? Yeah. Not not as good as the classic Milkman? Not for me, no. Ah, that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, the artwork, Ryan, it, uh, I don't know what that is on the front cover. It's like puppets or something? What are those? Oh, oh, geez, I better not get back into puppets. Forget I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Brant and his puppets. <laughs> Here we go again. Um, yeah, they look like they look like some sort of figures, like almost like almost like a primitive art, I guess. Mm. Yeah, and maybe. Hey, it almost looks like the one guy with the spiky hair is kind of wearing blackface. I guess uh, the I was going to say is that racist? It kind of. I mean, it might be. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't. But it kind of looks like blackface. Uh, I guess this one figure that has been painted here um the one in the middle um looks kind of skeleton-esque and then uh the other guy on the right hard to tell it's got the bow tie going don't really know what's going on there is though behind them if you can see in the background like almost it looks like little bars hmm. that and i don't know if that's just holding them up these could be like um you know how at uh, the Midway, mm. at an amusement park, there are those things that you hit down with the balls, like a knockdown? These could mm, be like yeah. knockdowns. I don't know. But it's weird. Hard to tie this image in with the music, though. A reference to the nu to nuclear war alphabet. I'm not seeing it. Well, there's the bombs on the guy's shirt. I suppose, yeah. I'm not seeing it except for the gigantic bombs on his shirt. <laughs> 
the back is kind of a throwback to the LP. Hey, I'm pretty sure that image is on the, yep. the blend. Yeah, yeah. Yep. The the front cover art by John Seeger, though, hmm. and the photography by Ralph Drizwecki. And then back cover photographed by Tom Bamberger. Now, what about Dead Wax, Ryan? None. Nine. 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 Save nine for the next release. <laughs> All right. So I guess we're on to the ballot result already. Ballot result. Is it alphabet, Ryan? I think it has to be. I mean, by process of elimination, right? Because if we're going to do next episode. Yeah, we don't have much of a choice there. Uh Uh-uh. All right, alphabet it is. Hey, Ryan, thanks to John Kruth. And everyone should zip over to the next episode in their feed and check out part two of the interview. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.